Good morning again. Good to see you all on this rainy Sunday morning. And thanks for showing up. Uh, it's a kind of day that, yeah, you want to <laughs> stay in your pajamas <laughs> or your if you're nude, <laughs> <around in> the <laughs> nude. <laughs> whatever, whatever your preference. It's, it's. I know it's kind. It's taking some effort to um, make it out to Owan. So, without your presence, this place is just a home for Wilbur, <laughs> a home for Wilbur and Taishan and me. So it's really wonderful that you could uh, join us today. A uh, sort of um, preview of coming attractions uh, for the next couple of months, we will be addressing and discussing and exploring the engaged Buddhist uh, precepts. Uh, there are a number of our Sangha members, uh, some of whom are on Zoom. I don't think any others are here who are receiving precepts, uh, lay ordination. And when uh, anyone in our Sangha, probably anyone in the whole universe is receiving precepts, we're all receiving precepts together. So um, even though these particular individuals will be lay ordained and be sewing their roxus, um, uh, we're all going to be receiving precepts together with them and supporting them. So uh, we're going to spend the next few months exploring uh, precepts, which we do regularly because there seems to be always someone who wants to commit themselves to a life of Buddhist practice. Uh, so we're continually exploring precepts. <clears throat> uh, this, the next few months will be addressing and focusing on what are called engaged Buddhist precepts, engaged Buddhist practice. Um, this kind of, uh, which we read the, the 14 engaged Buddhist precepts this morning. So you have a bit of an idea of what we'll be talking about. Um, this notion of engaged Buddhist practice uh, is designed, it was introduced by Thich Nhat Hanh. Some of you may be aware of the wonderful um, uh, um, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Uh, he was my first teacher, so he's since passed. Uh, but he was very committed to taking this practice into the world. Uh, dealing with social issues, uh, political, social, and psychological issues, so that Buddhist practice isn't presumably just something that we do on our cushions, uh, but we, we engage it. We engage the practice in the world. Quite frankly, I don't really think there's any difference between regular Buddhist practice and engaged Buddhist practice. Uh, I suspect that, um, that this spiritual path is perhaps one of the most engaged spiritual paths that exists 
as a spiritual or religious practice. Uh, particularly in Zen practice, uh, there really is uh, the core of Zen practice is the way you live your life. So that is being part of the world. Uh, this is not a practice that takes place apart from the world. Uh, in early Buddhist uh, training, uh, in early Buddhism, there was perhaps a more uh, a greater divide between monastic life, that is people who were uh, practicing as monks and nuns, apart from the world. So there, there was this, <clears throat> this division between the mundane world, uh, you know, sometimes called um, the world of 10,000 things, the dusty world, um, the, the world of samsara, of suffering and craving. And then there was uh, nirvana. There was the Buddhist uh, retreat from that world. Um, in, over the years, particularly in contemporary life, we don't make such a sharp distinction between samsara, <laughs> the, the world of <clears throat> the 10,000 things, and uh, nirvana, <clears throat> which is a, liber a world of liberation where those cravings and those, uh, those attachments uh, uh, are released. So <clears throat> in Zen, we, we say samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. This, there's no, no real distinction uh, fundamentally between those two. That's just a duality that we seek to uh, uh, um, understand isn't really two. <clears throat> so <clears throat> you could say that engaged, engaged practice, as we talked about the, recited the 14 precepts, gets to be really specific. Um, when you receive precepts, you vow for 16, in 16 different ways. The first three ways are very, you might say kind of universal or general. So you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. It's just a, a you know, a kind of spacious vow uh, in, in, in committing yourselves to these three jewels. Then it gets a little bit more specific. <clears throat> there are also three pure precepts, which are, I vow to do good. I vow to avoid, it sometimes says evil. I, I'm inclined not to use that word evil, but, but it's often used. Uh, so I, I vow to do good. I vow to refrain, sometimes we say, from unwholesome or unskillful action. And I vow to serve or save all beings. I vow to dedicate my life to the relief of suffering for all beings. So those are the three pure precepts. And then there are 10 pure mind precepts, which go all the way from uh, refraining from killing lying, stealing, very much like the Ten Commandments, 
uh, but not commandments. They're not, you know, you must, uh, if you don't, bad things are going to happen to you, particularly in the afterlife. Uh, so, so they're not commandments at all, but they are, sometimes we say, guidelines for our life. Uh, and there, we don't expect that you're going to observe them perfectly by any means. Uh, but we work, we work toward that. Uh, we work toward being more and more realized human beings. The engaged Buddhist precepts may go even more specific than that, as we read. Uh, so it's it's maybe not just um, uh, not lying, but maybe it's um, not holding to fixed views, not trying to persuade anybody else that lying is a good thing. Uh, or not even telling a white lie. So, you know, you can get really quite more specific about the precept of don't lie or don't take what isn't given or don't kill. You can, you can make those a lot more specific. And that's really what we have to do in our lives. You know, we have this precept, don't lie, and then we're faced with a very specific situation where, I don't know, maybe not telling this person the truth <laughs> would be more skillful than saying like, <laughs> you really annoy me. <laughs> you, know, you know, it might be better not to be <laughs> truthful in that sense, but just to be civil and polite, even though the truth is that you really can't stand being around that person. You know, I, that's a, actually, that's probably a very common uh, situation that we get into. Uh, and of course, some of the more dramatic ones are, you know, somebody is passing away and it might be more skillful not to tell them the truth about that. Uh, but find a way to support them uh, without that kind of uh, truth, truth telling. So there are so many, we could say, exceptions to the rules or situations that we need to be deeply present and aware, to, aware of so that we know what, what, we, what we need to do in this particular case. So, engaged Buddhist precepts and practice means that we take, we take account of the social, social context, the social and political context in which we find ourselves, that, that our practice isn't just about our little bubble our little world, but we take an interest in everything around us, all the dynamics of in, inter, interactions, political, social, economic, that we're engaged in all these aspects of the world and we engage our practice in it. It's not like we're practicing Buddhism we're practicing peace, we're practicing compassion and wisdom, 
and let them do what they let them do what they want to do. Let let the world go to hell in a handbasket, and we're here here at Owan Zendo, you know, bowing and and smiling and being quiet and peaceful. Uh, you know, we are. This is this is our life. This is part of our life. The social and political and economic conditions in which we live. We're not separate from that. They define us in many ways. So there's a, a, a Buddhist scholar who I like very much uh, named David Loy, who has coined this uh, term, we go. And it's, um, it's a sort of corollary to the ego. So we talk about the ego as a constructed self, personal self, who, who am I? But the we go <laughs> is, is our social self, our group self, our we self. And this is about the groups that we belong to. This is part of our we go identity. Like we are Buddhists. <laughs> that is part of our we go. You know, I could say, I am, uh, I'm an American. That's an, a, a group that I belong to, that I identify with that group. Uh, I'm a female. <laughs> last, last examination uh, that I belong to that group. Uh, I am uh, a mother. Uh, I belong to the group of mothers. Um, and probably I belong to the group of mothers with gay children. Uh, so that's another group I belong to. Um, so we have we have wegos that we've constructed groups that we identify with. And just as the separate personal self uh, is the ego, we have a group identity, a constructed group identity that we hang on to, just as we hang on to our personal sense of self. Uh, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I am uh, a progressive Democrat, <laughs> you know, I am a MAGA Republican. So it gets, it, you know, it gets subgroups, <laughs> uh, groups and subgroups. And all of these are we's, we-goes. And whenever you have a we-go, just as when you have an ego, there's always an, an other. There's always something that isn't that, right? It's just part of the deal. So just as we find that our egos, our constructed egos need to be protected and defended, why? Because they're nothing. <laughs> they actually are empty of separateness. They're empty of substance. The fact that I am um, 
that I identify myself as uh, as a Buddhist, for example, when I begin to investigate that, I discover that, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, a Buddhist is made up of all non-Buddhist elements. That is, you are made up of all non-you elements, just as a piece of paper is made up of sunshine and, and rain and uh, the paper mill and the, the people that work in the paper mill. And, you know, this, this thing, and we sometimes say that me, everything I am is borrowed from everything else in the universe. And so this self, this construction, it does exist but it doesn't exist as separate from anything else. It's, it's just an illusion. Uh, and we perhaps will discover that when we sit, when we practice. So we have to keep, we have to keep, um, I'm gonna use the word reifying it <laughs> because it doesn't exist. We have to keep finding a way to make believe it exists. Like we have to get, we have to accomplish more, right? We have to get more titles to our names. Uh, we have to do more things. Uh, we have to gain more weight. So we feel more substantial, you know? We have to have our CVs are, are you know, full. Uh, we, ha we have to have more activities so that it seems like we're gonna be real. At some point, we're gonna really feel real. And we have to keep doing that because we know on some level that we're not real, that this is all a big construction from the time we're born. We, we are constructing this empty house. <laughs> and that is also true of the groups that we belong to, which we identify so much with as, you know, that one of the things, the precepts that we read, even Buddhists, what does that mean? Uh, when you really look into it, it it's something that we've constructed. It, it doesn't exist. Where is it? <laughs> you know, it's something we've constructed. And yet we attach, we attach to these groups in part because those two are empty. Those two are, you know, basically are just things that we've put together. And of course, everything we put together, everything that's put together falls apart. Inevitably, it's called impermanence, which is one of the marks of existence. Uh, it's a, a noble truth. Um, and so this, this, all of these wonderful constructions that we create for ourselves um, need to be constantly protected, um, uh, shored up, uh, added to. Uh, and so we see that, you know, when, if you're, say, a MAGA Republican or a progressive Democrat, you're always fighting the other, you know, or you're a Buddhist and other people are Christians. They're the other. They don't believe the way we do. And so, we're constantly having to shore up to argue that Buddhism is, yeah, Buddhism is right. Buddhism is the way. Um, 
because on, on some level we know that this has been constructed. This is this is not as it says in the in the engaged Buddhist brief. No absolute truth. But we even though we know that, it's so uncomfortable to live with that. We have to make it seem real. And so we have to keep pumping it up, keep arguing against it, keep protecting it. Um, and that, that uses a lot of energy. No wonder we're all exhausted. No wonder we're all stressed because we're always defending, protecting and building against that other that is always in some sense threatening who we are and the groups we belong to. So um, how in particular uh, do we manifest these teachings in our everyday life, in our social life, in our relationships with others, not only with human others, but with the natural world, <clears throat> with space, with stars, with animals. Uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we express, enact, engage our, pre our precepts? And by the way, these precepts, I would suggest, are the core of Buddhism. Uh, they, are, they are the way we live our life. And there's nothing about Buddhism that is, Zen Buddhism in particular, that is, I'm making a, I'm making, I'm drawing a circle around Zen Buddhism. Just be aware. <laughs> that um, is separate from our everyday life. And so many of us always want to ask, always are asking, how do I translate what is happening on the cushion to my life with my family, to parenting, to taking care of uh, my career, uh, to dealing with irritable people, to, um, you know, to knowing what to do in a moral quandary? Uh, how, what should I do? How does, how does Buddhist practice inform my everyday life? And everybody is struggling with that. How to apply what we practice here in the Zendo to everything we do. And there's nothing more important than that because Zen is a way of life. It's not just, it's not just, we're, we sit here in order to, in part, just sit here, but to also bring our cushions, carry our cushions inside of us out into the so-called real world. So this is a very important uh, aspect of our practice. How do we live a Buddhist life? How do we live an engaged Buddhist life? So um, I'm going to uh, offer some, um, some questions that you might sit with, you might 
explore, you might um, consider. These are very specific. So when Thanksgiving comes along, can you be the one who suggests a vegetarian meal? Can you be? Can you be the one who remembers to turn off the lights? To turn off the faucet? To refuse to use plastic bags at the supermarket? Can you be the one who recycles in a dedicated way? Can you be the one who returns change when you've been undercharged? Can you be the one who remains calm when everybody else is in turmoil? I can remember um, when my last partner was having a heart attack on convulsing on the bed. Um, I was on 911 with one hand and holding him down, this big man on the bed with another hand, trying to keep him from falling off, and he was having convulsions. My dog, my lab, was sitting on her little tuffet right beside the bed, just completely calm. This is a black lab of all creatures. And every time I looked over to her, she was just holding the calm amidst all this turmoil. Can we, I mean, it was amazing. Can we do that? Can we be that being who holds that place of calm in the midst of turmoil? Can we be the one who drinks sparkling cider when everybody else is drinking alcohol and getting drunk? Or the one who is the designated driver when everybody else is unable and unwilling? Can you be the one who avoids taking sides in a conflict? Even though there's a lot of pressure to take sides. This was something that Thich Nhat Hanh was able to do in the Vietnam War. And he was vilified by both the North and the South and he was exiled from his country because he refused to take sides. Can you be the one? Can you be the one who avoids gossiping? That's our favorite occupation. Mm -hmm. Everybody's gossiping behind 
people's backs. Oh, it, that's so intoxicating. This is the precept on intoxication. Gossip is incredibly intoxicating, especially when that person isn't there. Well, it isn't gossip unless the person isn't there, right? <laughs> so can you avoid that? Can you avoid, everybody is so you know, really into it. Can you resist unhealthy, damaging desires? Incredible cravings, impulses, sexual or otherwise. There's another wonderful little uh, anecdote about um, one of the famous American <clears throat> Zen masters, Suzuki Roshi, San Francisco Zen Center. And he was offering Dokusan, which is private interview uh, with his student. And he happened to be um, <clears throat> interviewing with one of his female students. And she confessed to him in this interview, I love you, Suzuki. <laughs> you know, I, I'll do anything for you, uh, anything you want. Um, I'm at your mercy. I'm at your disposal. And there was this real sense of, of flirting with him. That often happens with Zen teachers or generally teachers. You've kind of fall in love with your teachers. And this, this young woman had fallen in love with Suzuki Roshi. And she was, she was offering herself. And she says, I'm really, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen uh, if, you know, if I allow my, my infatuation with you to, to be expressed. And he said, oh, don't, don't worry. He said, I have enough discipline for both of us. So do you have enough discipline to keep from damaging unhealthy behavior? Behavior that might cause suffering in the future. Can you be the one who avoids meddling in other people's lives? Even though, of course, you see exactly what needs to be done. You, you see, if they only did that, everything would be fine. So I'm, I gotta let them know, you know, I've gotta fix this. Can you avoid? Meddling in people's lives, even though it's very clear to you what they need to do. Except, of course, if they ask you. Can you trust other people to find their way to make the mistakes that they need to make without you being hovering over them? <laughs> and pushing them in different directions. Can you be that one? So these are ways in which you can um, explore the way our precepts are operative in your everyday life. 
in the bigger picture, the bigger picture of our social, economic, and political life, so much of this ego and we go have become what might be called institutionalized. That is, we have um, all the things that the ego and we go act to try to protect themselves, try to build themselves up. We call them the three poisons in Buddhist practice, greed, anger, and ignorance. And <clears throat> these poisons can easily characterize not just our personal lives, but our social lives, because our social lives are really kind of uh, manifestations of our individual lives. So this, we often use greed, the attempt to accumulate to make us feel real. And similarly, in, in our social existence, where does greed, where does this attempt to reify this, this group? Of course, it's in, in part in consumerism. You know, we, we institutionalize greed by thinking of ourselves and living in a society of consumers. And we're often addressed that way as consumers. Um, <laughs> you know, we consume things. That's our life is buying and selling, but mainly buying, <laughs> buying, you know, more and more. What does that poster say? He, he, uh, the person with the most toys wins. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's about accumulation and it's about greed. It's not about need, it's about greed. So that's our consumer economy. That's a capitalism, that's um, profit. And of course, corporate profits can never be enough, right? You, you always be more profitable. I think Donald Trump was once asked, because um, very wealthy, you know, when is enough? And he said, enough isn't in my vocabulary. When, when and we, we practice here, Oriyoki, just enough. <laughs> but most of us don't know when enough is enough. It's always, we can always do more or be more or have more. Um, and of course, that's, we, we consume, we consume, consume, consume. So that's kind of institutional greed and institutional um, hatred or anger is our adversarial society, which is epitomized in, mil in our military. You know, we, we have a strong institutional military force. We don't have a department of peace. <laughs> we have a department of war. And so that is an institutional expression of anger, of hatred. So we become aware of that. And then ignorance, um, most of us, I suspect, because we are, we are consumers of media 
and who, who would have imagined in Buddha's time that there would be social media, you know, that could spread all kinds of information in the way that it's happening. So all of, we now have a real problem distinguishing between what is true and what isn't true. Right? It's, you know, the big lie. And truly, I have to say, sometimes when I hear the passion with which uh, some of the defenders of the, the uh, big lie are defending it, sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe they're right. Uh, truly, uh, it's, it's, it's really distressing because it, it is difficult now to know what is real, what isn't real. You look on an image on the internet, is that real? Is that, is that someone, is that nothing? So this whole notion of what is real and what isn't is we really don't know. So there's a kind of promotion of ignorance in social media. So what, so we, we become aware of this, that we, we're living in a society that um, kind of institutionalizes our egos, ultimately. We become aware of that. Then what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Particularly with respect to the social con constructs that we live in. We put our energies to the antidotes to greed, anger, and ignorance. We put our energy into generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Greed, generosity. Hatred, loving kindness. Ignorance, wisdom, which has nothing to do with knowledge, wisdom. So where do we find a we go, a group, a society that commits to generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Where do we find that? Right here. In Sangha. <laughs>